Welcome to Renegade Naturalist Radio with Dr. Dan Bakken. Real stories and real science about nature and our changing environment. In today's episode, Dan talks with Arctic historian and archaeologist John Boxtos, who's been traveling and studying the Arctic since 1962. Boxtos is also the author of several books on the subject, including Whales, Ice, and Men, The History of Whaling in the Western Arctic, and Arctic Passages, which details Boxtos's quest to traverse the Northwest Passage in a wood-framed umiak, a 32-foot Eskimo boat covered with walrus hide. John, I'm really glad to talk with you. And, uh, and actually, there's a bunch of questions I've always wanted to ask you, and somehow in the many years we've worked together, I've never had a chance to ask you. I will start with you know, you really have an amazing background. On the one hand, I see you as a major Arctic explorer, and on the other hand, as one of the best scholars I've ever met uh, in ethnology and history. How'd you get interested in the Arctic? I mean, you grew up in uh, Hartford and New Haven, right? So how did you? Yeah, get that's right. In Hartford, actually, uh, and uh, I was one of those people who was incredibly fortunate to find my career within one week of having left high school. I. Uh, had taken a, a volunteer job with a medical mission up in Labrador called the Grenfell Mission, which uh, in, the, in the 19th and early 20th centuries uh, gave uh, provided medical aid to the white men and the Indians and the uh, Eskimos who lived on the coast who were utterly without any sort of service. It was started by an Englishman named Sir Wilfred Grenfell. Anyway, I uh, one week after getting out of high school, I uh, found myself on the coast of Labrador, and I just fell in love with the north. It wasn't very far north, but I, it, it seemed to me like I was standing near the North Pole or something. So from that moment on, I started studying about the north uh, in any way I could. And uh, I, uh, as sort of a sideline to this, uh, I, took, uh, I, I, felt I got interested in Eskimo umiak. So I knew a bit about boats, and I knew a bit about paddling, but I just saw these Eskimo uh, uh, umiaks as being, they were big and fast and held in an incredible amount Can you amount describe of, them? You know, uh, I'm just trying to picture them. Describe well, them. if you imagine what, what, a, what a, a Grand Banks dory looks like, high sides and points at both, uh, pointed at both ends. Yeah, double but, uh, but unlike uh, a, a European boat, which is rigid and made of basically slats of wood or whatever, uh, Eskimo boats are just a, a, a very flexible, thin frame covered by a, a very durable hide, walrus or, uh, uh, or bearded seal or seal skins. And uh, uh, they're, they're very fast and very light and huge capacity. So uh, anyway, I, I found an old uh, abandoned uh, umiak frame and bought it from the owner and uh, rebuilt it and then uh, covered it in walrus hides at, uh, at, at Nome, Alaska. And I set off, and I traveled in that boat 6,000 miles from uh, Bering Strait all the way over to the, the high Arctic of Canada. Now, were you the, alone? Uh, no, no, I had uh, a freighter canoe uh, and uh, seven people with me. So five okay. people in the Umiak and two in the freighter canoe. And we, it, was a, it was great, because a very safe uh, way to travel because uh, they, the boats only drew two or three feet of water. So... We, we basically went along shore the whole way. We brought along supplies, and occasionally we'd, you know, uh, uh, you know, fish for salmon or something like that. You know, in the summer, there isn't much night, so you kind of just tend to work around when the, when the weather's good and sleep when it isn't good. So, you know, if the wind came up, we'd go ashore, 
turn the boat over on its side and prop it up with a couple of oars and turn it into a cook tent and then sleep in a couple of tents nearby. And then when the wind stopped blowing, we'd go on and without any particular itinerary except we kept moving eastward. And uh, uh, in the process, I learned a great deal about the history and the archaeology of the area. It was a, it was a great uh, trip, but it took me from 1972 to 1980. And we would go as far as we could at the uh, one summer and then uh, stash the boat often at a dew line station, a radar station up in the Arctic, and uh, come back and get it the next year and then go on. But uh, uh, it, it ignited my interest in... Uh, the whaling industry up there, the history of the whaling industry, because uh, the I could see that much of the area had a, had a the people the people were using historical 19th century American whaling tools, and they were some of them were descended from American whalemen, and so I that that drew me into my interest in the history of the whale fishery. I see. And I took a job at the New Bedford Whaling Museum for 11 years as curator of ethnology there. And that's when you and I met, when you were right. at Woods Hole. That's right. But before we get to that, so do you, in your book, High Latitude, is that, do you tell some of these stories? I do, but it's, it's, uh, it's primarily in an earlier book called uh, Arctic Passages, which uh, uh, was published sometime in the 80s. Did yes, you have uh, any um, major storms? that? You well, that was the thing. You know, I was also writing for the National Geographic at the same time. And they said, we've got to have a crisis to... Uh, <laughs> uh, to, public, to, to work into this thing. And I said, you hired me to keep these people alive, not to have a crisis. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I quoted uh, a, a famous Arctic explorer, whose name was Villiamore Stefansson, and his dictum was, adventure is a sign of incompetence. Okay. <laughs> well, the point is that uh, if, his theory was that if you return from an expedition with anything to say except that you accomplished your objectives, and uh, you, you probably hadn't planned properly, and so, so there's no room for, 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 for near misses. You know, a, a competent person working in the uh, outdoors uh, sh- should have thought these things through. Well, you know, that's very uh, funny because uh, when I was a graduate student, one of my advisors was named Jim Larson. And he, every summer, had a contract with the Navy. And he hired an Indian guide. And they would go explore northern Canada because the question was, could you tell from the vegetation around a wetland or a lake? whether you could land an airplane on the ice. And I, so he invited me over one night to show me slides from his pictures, uh, trips. And I said, gee, Jim, you must have had some really wonderful adventures. And he said, adventures? Hell no. An adventure is either the result of foolhardiness or bad planning. <laughs> <laughs> Something ran after my own heart. Right. Well, I didn't have many adventures, but it was certainly fascinating the whole time. So how did you get started working? You worked with the Eskimos. You learned Eskimo, right? Yeah, well, it's to a certain degree. But what I did was I, uh, when I was uh, at graduate school in England, after I finished my MA, or what, what is the British equivalent of an MA, they said, now get lost for a couple of years and study somewhere else so you don't get a parochial education. So I was fortunate to uh, get a job at the uh, University Museum in Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania, now called the Penn Museum. And I worked for a famous Arctic man named Froelich Rainey, who had done really uh, groundbreaking uh, excavations in the 1930s at the end of the 30s, uh, up in Alaska, discovering new cultures and that sort of thing. And he really uh, introduced me to former friends of his all along the coast and sent me up to Point Hope, Alaska, which is about halfway between Bering Strait and Point Barrow, 
a community of Eskimo whalers who live on a long point of land that stretches out into the Chukchi Sea and hunt, hunt bowhead whales in the traditional way using skin boats and 19th century harpoons and stuff. And uh, that, that's what really got me interested in the history of the American whale fishery. And, the, and uh, you participated in those. Yeah, uh, for 10 years. I, I went up every uh, beginning of April and came back uh, down to Bering Strait at the uh, beginning of June to begin excavations. I, but I spent, you know, those those eight weeks uh, as a member of an Eskimo whaling crew, you know, waiting at the lead edge between the shore fast ice and the moving pack ice for the bowheads to arrive and then paddled out to chase them. And it was... Uh, amazingly good hard work but it was really really rewarding then it was in the 70s that you came to me and that was we started working together uh, that's right that was that was when the uh, in, in the mid 70s uh everyone began to think that the eskimo harvest uh, of bowhead whales in the in the bearing chukchi and beaufort seas was excessive and it, the, the the strike rate really was very high and uh, anyway, uh, the, the International Whaling Commission threatened to shut down the Eskimo uh, whale hunt because they thought right. it was so large. Uh, I uh, realized that the, 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 while these people were working uh, out of uh, a purity of, of thought, there was actually no scientific uh, basis for, for, uh, for, for their assumptions because they didn't know how many whales were alive at the time, nor did they know how many whales had been harvested in the 19th century by the American whaling industry, which has severely reduced the population. And uh, so without, without either of those two data sets, this was uh, sort of, uh, uh, this, this was going to deeply impact a, a vibrant Eskimo society uh, uh, in a rush to judgment. So while they, while the scientists and the government uh, began counting whales from the air and from the shore, I began counting whales with you in uh, in the uh, in, in logbooks. Uh, what we extracted sixty six thousand days of observations. Yes, yeah, right. And this is where it gets really interesting because, first of all, the point you just raised is one of my favorite focuses, which is the combination of people and environment. Uh, that, and sometimes we've gone too far in the recent concerns about the environment to think people don't matter and people aren't important. And yet here you're saying you wanted to help conserve the Eskimo culture as well as conserve the whales. And that combination is what I think is really important. I, I fully agree with you. And we, as you remember, we we spent uh, the winter of 19, well, let's see, what was about a year and a half. We I had seven people working for me at the Whaling Museum extracting uh, uh, every day is observations from something like 516 whaling cru cruises. Right, 20% of all the cruises that have ever, ever been made. The first and they were all made, made out of New Bedford by Yankees. Not, not, not all. Uh, there were some out of uh, other New England ports, you know, uh, from Martha's Vineyard of, uh, and uh, Nantucket and uh, New London and places like that. They'd, they'd set off in the autumn in the early days of the fishery and round Cape Horn in the southern summer, and then go up in the Pacific and take any whales they might encounter on the way. But uh, there were, the the the, uh, the bowhead whale population of the Bering, Chukchi, and Beaufort Seas was only discovered uh, in 1848, and it had never been uh, hunted. And by then, the world, or the the, whale, the world, the rest of the world's whaling grounds were becoming depleted. Uh, they hadn't started hunting in the Antarctic yet either, and that required. Um, you know, uh, engine-powered vessels to go as fast as those big whales. 
But anyway, it turned the bowhead fishery and the and the Bering Chukchi and Beaufort Seas was hugely profitable and drew as many as 200 ships uh, uh, or more than 200 ships uh, for a couple of years uh, per summer up there. And it, and as you and anyway, so we went back and established uh, the number. First of all, the, the every every ship that had been up there in the fishery, and then we tracked down their logbooks and th- in collections throughout the world. Many of them in New Bedford, however, and uh, and began extracting every day's uh, information: uh, the name, the name of the ship, of course, the date, uh, the wind uh, conditions, the visibility, the ice conditions, uh, whether a whale was seen only, or struck and lost, or struck and, and captured, or found dead. And if if it was recorded, we we uh, inserted the uh, the size of the uh, how many barrels of oil it yielded and how many right. pounds of baleen it yielded. Well, you know, I came, I, I found this just so fascinating when you arrived at Woods Hole because uh, you know most people in ecology, my field, they're focused on one thing, but I like to think broadly, and I thought that was such a great idea to use historic information, historical information and go back through time and reconstruct things. And uh, I'll never forget when you turned up at first day at Woods Hole, if I can tell that story, if you don't mind, <laughs> which I wrote about it. But, <clears throat> you know, at Woods Hole, full of scientists, there was this reverse snobbery that the sloppier you looked, the more important you had to be. And so I was eating lunch in this typical 60, uh, 60s sort of hippie place, and my research assistant came over to me and whispered in my ear, he said, there's this really strange guy come to visit you. He's got on a three-piece suit and a tie and a handkerchief in his pocket. I, I think he's a typewriter salesman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, if there's anything opposite from a typewriter salesman, it's you going to take a Unimac boat across the Arctic. It was really fun. I, I, I like that. But and then I learned all the really difficult, tough things you've done. Uh, maybe you want to tell, tell about uh, about the analysis of the bowhead uh, data, uh, Dan. First of all, we were able to reconstruct the entire history of the take, and uh, we found out some wonderful things, such as uh, uh, they hunted, you know, from 1849 to 1915, 1914. 14. Yeah. 2015, and they uh, took a third of the whales they ever took in the first 10 years, and they took two-thirds of the whales they ever took in the first 20 years, and then they spent the rest of those years digging around, trying to find the the last third, and that means the whales had to be really valuable. And also, uh, we were able to reconstruct the entire history of the whaling and the effects on the whales and reconstruct an estimate of how many whales there had been. And uh, so we were able to really reconstruct uh, what, what had happened historically to the whales. So I just found it really fascinating, and I thought it was very helpful. Well, it really was fun, that project. And it's, it's, as they say, it has legs because we're, as you know, we've been going through uh, studying. Uh, we, we've taken the walrus data out and, and the sea ice data, and we're we're approaching uh, doing the uh, gray whale data. Uh, what got us interested in that is because the the bowhead whalers were uh, hunting the bowheads, and the bowheads were near the ice edge where there was a lot of food. Uh, they, the uh, whaling log ships recorded every time they saw sea ice. So of these 65,000 days of observation, we found 23,000 on which they saw sea ice. And we got together with the two uh, sea ice experts from the University of Alaska, and we 
we analyzed this and were able to compare what the ice edge was like at the end of the winter and end of the summer in the 1980s from modern ships with what it was like in the 19th century. And we also did this with modern satellite information. And that's written up and published. And it's just fascinating because uh, it turns out that the end of the winter extent was about the same in the 19th century as recently. But the end of the summer, things had gotten much uh, melted back much further north uh, in modern times than they had in the 19th century. So I thought it was very insightful and important information. Yes, I mean, that was, that's uh, it's amazing how uh, uh, how these historical documents uh, can prove can be very useful to modern problems, and uh, I think people are just starting to realize that there's an awful lot of atmospheric data uh, contained in ships' logs, and uh, uh, are now starting to try to mine them for that sort of information. Because well, I, I think you, you you made the point to to me that really the only the, the our sea ice data. Uh, 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 and, or, and good uh, meteorological data for that er- for that area really only starts about 1970. So right. people extrapolating from that from a, uh, extrapolating from a pretty uh, pretty narrow window. Right. It's very hard because they you know modern reconstructions are trying to from historical records trying to reconstruct from about 1850 to now. But if you think of where where were they recording temperatures, etc. In 1850, well, it'd be London, New York, Philadelphia, you know, Ben Franklin started some of this. Uh, and so that wasn't very representative of the whole earth. That wasn't the interest at the time. And so we have to use whatever we, we can. And I think that our study, uh, you know, was one of the first to use historical information so carefully. And in that way, it's a demonstration of uh, the importance of it. And also this combination of the importance of people and their cultures and the importance of environment. Those are two themes that uh, are very important for us to return to. So this has been a really good conversation and, you know, we've really filled up the time. So I want to thank you so much. And I, there's still a lot more stories I want to hear, but we'll have to do that another time. So thank Okay. You. Well, thank you very much, Dan. It's been great talking to you as always. Thank you. This has been Renegade Naturalist Radio, hosted by Daniel Bakken. For more information about Dan or about his books, please go to www.danielbbakken.com.